If you are joining us for the first time, we're in week four of a series we're calling Roads to Revival. And what we're doing in the series, we are journeying together as a church through the book of Romans. And it's not just a Sunday experience. There is reading for you to engage with throughout the week. So if you're on the road, you can still have revival by getting in the book of Romans and reading with us. My wife said to me, well, do I have to read it? Can I just listen to it? Well, of course you can listen to it, but I want to encourage you to read it. Read it. Even if you don't understand it, even if it seems a little heady or a little deep, I want to encourage you to read it because I'm explaining it. Either if you're a week ahead, I'm explaining what you just read, or if you're kind of reading with the church, then I'm setting you up for for what you're going to read. And so this week, if you're if you're on pace, then you're going to be reading chapters 9 and 10 because this is the fourth week. Um, or maybe you read it last week. But you can catch up wherever you're at and engage with it because the truth is revival has to start in us. It's not going to start out there. It, it, it's going to start in our soul, in our hearts first. And it, then that catches and it's, it, we're going to experience it as a church. So engage with God's Word. And uh, in Romans chapter 9, we're going to do you a favor, I'm going to go through 90% of the chapter. So if you're on pace, you're going to get some of your reading done today. But uh, I want to begin at verse 30 of Romans chapter 9 because Paul concludes the chapter with really the big thought that I want all of you to grab hold of today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Romans chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read from the NIV, but we'll put the Actually, I'm reading from a different translation. It's the Disciples Literal New Testament, something like that, D-L-N-T. I might have made that up, but it's a, it is a real translation. Um, but verse 30 is where we're going to start. Paul's writing. He says, Therefore, what shall we say? That Gentiles, the ones not pursuing righteousness, took hold of righteousness, but a righteousness by faith. But Israel, talking about the Jewish people, Pursuing the law of righteousness did not attain the law. In other words, they weren't able to grab hold of it. For what reason? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if, but as if it was by works. Let me read verse 30 one more time. It says, what shall we say? The Gentiles, once not pursuing righteousness, they took hold of righteousness, but it was a righteousness by faith. And I want to use this passage to speak to you today from this subject, holding tight to truth. Holding tight to truth. That's the title of my message. And uh, would you just, so I know you're with me, just fist bump somebody and ask them, are you holding tight to truth? Like you make a fist like you're holding tight. Are you holding tight to truth? I, uh, I brought up with me one of my most prized possessions might not look like much to you, but I'm going to tell you why it's meaningful to me. You might not know this about me. I'm a very sentimental guy. Um, I don't take a lot of photos. Photos aren't my thing. That's my wife's thing. But I do really like mementos. I, I, I like, you know, souvenirs. I like little things that have a lot of intrinsic meaning behind them. And, and that's what has value to me. And it's especially valuable to me and meaningful if, if it not only has some meaning behind it, like a memory behind it, but if it's also useful. So this is like a really meaningful thing to me. I bought this bag when my wife and I were in Italy. It was over our 15-year anniversary. It's a trip we took together. The only time we've been there. And uh, if you've heard me tell the story about our honeymoon 
and the leather jacket I didn't buy and how I regret that for the rest of my life. You knew I wasn't going to like go on this trip and not come back with something. And so we were on our anniversary trip. We were in Rome. We were walking through the streets. We had had a great time. And as we were there, it's like one of the last couple last days we were there, we, we stopped by this leather shop and I walked in and they had all these things and this immediately caught my eye. I like this for lots of reasons. One, I just, I like the silhouette. It's very simple, very minimalistic. It's all handmade, put together by hand. I like the artistry and the craftsmanship in it. Um, inside, there's little like pockets. It's got a thing for my AirPods. It fits perfectly. There's a little thing for a pen there. It fits perfectly. It's got a zipper for, you know, my, my cord. If you can't tell, this is my it's my, primarily my computer, but I keep my laptop in here. It fits great. And, uh, and also, you know, it's my travel bag. I use this almost exclusively as a carry-on because I don't like to carry very much. I got my passport in here. And, and just, it's got everything that I need. Now, I will just say, like, when we travel, Marissa has a different philosophy than me. She likes as big a bag as possible. And um, where I will, like, I'll only check a bag if, if you know, or I'll, I'll do a carry-on if it's a direct flight. If it's not a direct flight, I'll check it. But she's like, I want as big a bag as possible. And, I mean, there's been times I, I catch her, like, praying in tongues, anointing the bag with oil, just trying to hope that it's not overweight. And uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. There was this one time, like, she put on the scale, and it was too much. And then, like, you have to embarrassingly open it up in front of everybody. And then we're, like, taking out clothes. I've got, like, putting pants on pants, and I'm wearing coats on top of coats and just to, you know, get it underweight. And, I mean, we made it. I had a heat stroke on the plane, but we did make it. But um, that's the, it's not this big. My favorite thing about this bag, though, I want to show you. My favorite thing isn't really the, the bag. It's this handle that it came with, this, this strap. Because generally speaking, if you ever see me, I'll, I'll have this bag with me. And, you know, I can, of course, I mean, if I, if I want to look, you know, all, all business, I can just grab it, grab it by, by these handles. But generally, I'll be walking through the airport. I'll put it on over my shoulder, and that way I can have like a coffee in my hand, and you know this is going to happen. I can like look at my phone and ignore people, and let, this is how I'll walk through the airport. My, my favorite thing about this bag is the handle, the strap. Why am I telling you all this? Well, as great as this is, this handle, this strap is not the bag. Like the valuable part is the bag. The, the valuable part is what's in the bag. Like, like, this is what matters, but the strap is helpful. And I'm telling you this because when I preach, I often give you handles. I give you handles for Scripture, handles for God's truth, handles for God's Word. But the handles are not the truth. That What's valuable is the truth. The, the handles... Just make it easier to carry. How many of you love handles? How many have love handles? That's just a different question. (laughs) I love handles. Love love something that makes it easier to carry. What happens lots of times, though, if you don't know what it's attached to, I'll see people grab hold of the handle, but this is not what matters. It makes it easier to carry, but if it's not anchored to the truth, it doesn't matter that you got hold of this. You, you, you don't have what you need. It's kind of like, I'll give you an example. If, if I say, 
God is good. Now, some of you grew up in the same church I did. God, God is good, right, all the time. And all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great handle. But if you've never walked with God long enough to experience some pain, and on the other side of that pain, you get to see God's divine purpose, that handle's going to fall flat. Like, if, if you've never been deep in the valley of the shadow of death, only to realize that God was still with you in that valley, that handle's going to fall flat. It's not going to mean very much. But if you've been through some pain, if you've experienced some hardship only to see that you've come through it and God could still use that, if you have experienced being in a moment where it seemed like there was no way out and yet God made a way where there seemed to be no way, then when I say God is good, hey, that means something now. I've experienced that. I, I, I know what that means. It's, it's a handle to carry the truth. Well, I'm bringing all that up because today I want to offer you, as we get into Romans chapter 9, I want to offer you some handles for, for truth. The handles are only good to help you carry the promise. They're, they're not the truth. They help you carry the truth. The handles aren't everything. And in Romans chapter 9, really chapters 9 and 10, that, those are the chapters that we're going to look at this week. In Romans chapter 9 and 10, the big truth that Paul wants you to grab hold of is this. This is the first handle. That God has authority, but I have responsibility. God has authority, but I have responsibility. Now, the Christian idea that God has authority is often referred to, really is referred to, as God's sovereignty. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, now it is a big idea. It is a very uh, theologically deep idea. But God's sovereignty, and we could, like, there's been volumes written on it. There's long definitions of it. I'm going to give you my definition, a working definition. God's sovereignty is simply this, that God is supreme, no one higher, and God is in control. What is God's sovereignty? When, when you hear people talk about the sovereignty of God, what do they mean? Its most basic, most simple definition is that God is supreme and God is in control. It's like God is in control. It means nothing happens without him knowing about it. Nothing has ever caught him by surprise. He, he is not, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. No, nothing happens without his, his, his knowledge. God is supreme and God is in control. And the idea that God is all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, nothing happens without him knowing about it. He's in control. Sometimes the idea people will say is, well, if God is in control... Well, 
what does that mean about all the stuff that is going on in the world? And what you need to know is that just because nothing happens without God's knowledge, just because God is in control, doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will. You think, well, how can that be? Well, I could give you some examples or some illustrations to help explain this, but really the point that I want you to grab hold of today is that there is a tension with this idea. What do you mean? Well, when I say God has authority, but I have responsibility, there's a tension with that. Tension, simply put, just means that something is being pulled on from both ends. Now, tension is not a bad thing. In fact, there is famous Danish theologian. He's alive during the time of Charles Spurgeon, 200 years ago. He wrote extensively on the subject, and he said this. His name is Soren Kirksgaard. He said this, that truth must be held in tension. Soren was uh, really not just a theologian, he was a philosopher. He's credited as really being the father of Western philosophy. Truth must be held in tension. What does that mean? Well, you think about this. The only reason I'm able to hold this, the truth, is because there's tension on the handle. I can have a hold of the handle but there's no tension on it, I'm not carrying this with me. It's only the moment that it's being pulled on, it's only a moment that there's some tension that now I can carry this with me. So we have to recognize that when we talk about the truth of Scripture, there's tension to this idea that God has authority, but I have responsibility. And it's in that tension that you discover so much truth about God and his word. In fact, I'll just tell you this. If you don't like tension, you're going to have a hard time following Jesus. There's a lot of tension in Scripture. There's a lot of tension oftentimes where I read God's word and it says one thing, but what I experience in my life looks very different. I've got to hold this tension and what happens many times with this idea of God's authority, God's sovereignty, is people can fall into like a trap of, well, I really like this side more. I'm going to lean on this side and take God's authority. God is in control. Okay, Pastor Justin, I, I'm with you. I think God is in control. I think he, he knows what's going on. I think his will is done. You know, I can't stop it. I can't control it. So, I mean, if God's in control... Why do I need to do anything? I mean, I'm just going to stay at home and play video games all day. I mean, his will is going to be done. He's in control. The problem with that idea is that as we look through Scripture, what we see is, yes, God has authority, yet he is always inviting people to be part of his plan. Let's kind of start at the beginning. Let's look at Noah. Noah's story happens in Genesis. You might know the story. The world was corrupt. It was chaotic. It was sinful. God comes to Noah. He says, Noah, I'm going to flood the world. Don't worry. I'm going to save you and your family because Noah was the only righteous person on the earth. 
And I was like, yes, thank you. He says, I want you to build an ark. Like, excuse me? Come again? What's an ark, first of all? Second, he's like, I thought you said you were going to save me. I thought you said you were going to deliver me. Yes, I am. Build an ark. Okay, we'll try a different one. Uh, Moses, Moses is a guy we know in Scripture. Exodus, you see his story start. God uses Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, out of Egyptian slavery. There are miracles after miracles that take place. The Israelites, they, they are freed. Pharaoh relents. They're marching towards the promised land. And while they are on their way, Pharaoh has a change of heart. He's like, what did I do? I, I, I'm not going to let them free. I'm either going to chase them down and slave them again and bring them back, or I'm going to kill them in the process. And so the Israelites, they're on their way. They see Egypt behind them with Pharaoh pursuing them, and what's in front of them is the Red Sea. They're trapped. They're pinned. Moses starts freaking out. God, what are you going to do? You said you were going to save us. God's like, it's all good. I got you covered. I'm going to save you. Hey, um, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your rod over the Red Sea. And if you know the story, the sea parts, the Israelites walk through it. The waters come back on the Egyptians. How did that happen? God did it. No question about it. Moses had to stretch. The people had to walk. You see this tension in Scripture that God has authority, but we have responsibility. God is going to do what he's going to do, but he's always inviting us into his plan. What we take from this is that God's sovereignty and God's authority is never an excuse to remove us from responsibility. We don't get an excuse to be irresponsible. It's called attention. The truths of Scripture are filled with these tensions. Jesus was fully God, fully man. It's attention. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. It's attention. Generally tend to lean more on one side or the other. We're saved by grace, but it's through faith. It's attention. Well, we need both of these anchors to hold on to the truth. Grace, faith. Fully God, fully man. It's attention. Well, in Romans chapter 9, I know that was a long introduction, what we've learned is that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome and this church is made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You see that in the, the verse I read to you? He said, hey, the Gentiles, they grabbed hold of righteousness by faith. Israel, Jews, they were not able to grab hold of it because they thought it only was grabbed hold of by works. He's writing to these two groups of people. The problem that he's trying to address, the reason he has to deal with a problem is because in Rome... Emperor Claudius had excommunicated the Jewish people. It happened multiple times. Well, by Jewish people, that also included the Jewish Christians. They had to leave. 
even though the church was still there, now when Paul's writing them, the Jews, the Jewish Christians, they've come back, but the church that they've come back to, they've been gone for five years. So they come back to this church, and they're thinking, this is not the church we were a part of. Things have changed a little bit. They're running things a little different. It's kind of like, like in our house, when we moved into our house, my wife set up everything. She arranged everything. You know, the couch is going to go here. The furniture is going to go there. The rug's going to go there. She put everything in the, in the cupboards. You know, the, the bowls go here. The glasses go here. She arranged everything. Now, let's just say, hypothetically, she was gone for one evening, and me, being the compassionate, good husband that I am, I unload the dishwasher and, you know, put things away. And let's just say, <laughs> hypothetically, that a bowl or a dish was not in the spot she was familiar with. She'd be like, hey, that doesn't go there. It's not in the wrong place. Or it's not in the right place. It's the wrong place. Well, think about what the Jewish Christians have experienced. This has been five years. Everything is rearranged. And I just want to say, it's not wrong, it's just different. I need to say that again because I feel the Holy Spirit on this. It's not wrong, it's just different. So, so it, it was, things were different. The main thing that was all different was, it was really really over food. If you remember, I did a series called The Table because the early church, they gathered around the table. And so they would gather around the table and Jews had kosher eating laws. Jewish Christians followed those. The Gentiles didn't. So they're getting ready to do communion and they're getting ready to, you know, have church and they're all eating. And what happens is they're fighting. The Jewish Christians are feeling excluded because they're not going to participate the way the Gentile Christians are. And the Gentile Christians are feeling judged because the Jewish Christians are like, hey, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. There's this big argument, this big tension between these two groups of people. And so Paul now, he has the task of reconciling these two groups of people with the gospel message. And so this is how he starts out. He says, hey, hey, Gentiles, guess what? You're in trouble. You're wrong. Oh, Jewish Christians, guess what? You're in trouble. You're wrong. See, the reality is all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's sin. This is the first three chapters of Romans. You messed up. You're wrong. All of us have. In fact, this is the condition of the culture that we're in. You look around. You see what's happening. It's all messed up. That's what Paul's saying to the church. We've all fallen short. And he gets into Romans 4 and 5 and says, but the good news is all of God has given you all this stuff. It's part of the gospel. Didn't leave you in that state. And he's come to equip you and help you. And, and this is all part of the package is what it has for you. And it gets into Romans chapter 6. And he says, so that's why you have to put to death your sinful desires. You want a revival? You can't have a revival without first putting some things to death. You've got to put to death some of that sin. Got to put to death some of that lust. You got to put to death some of those cravings, the, the flesh, he calls it. Well, in Romans 7, he answers the question that he assumes they're thinking, which is, well, I get it, Paul, but I'm still struggling. I've tried putting this stuff to death, and it keeps creeping back up in my life. I, 
I can't do it. What happens? He says, hey, you're under grace. You're not under the law. You, you, the, the penalty for sinning is not being held against you. What you should do, Romans 8, be led by the Spirit. Lean on the Spirit. Look to the Spirit for help. He's going to help you. Don't do it in your own strength. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, in other words, he's saying because of the gospel, because of grace, we're not under sin anymore. We're not under its power, its judgment. And the Spirit helps us be more like Jesus. Now, as we get into Romans 9, Paul wants to apply that message to both of these groups of people. So he says in Romans 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Okay, kind of a mouthful, but let me give you the next handle of this truth. This is what I want you to write down. It's God's job to save people. It's my job to serve people. It's God's job to save people, but it's my job to serve people. Paul starts out, and he's saying, man, if I could, I would wish that I was cursed so that my people could be blessed. Now, that's an extreme prayer, no doubt about it. But what he's acknowledging is that through the Jewish people, which Paul was a Jew, like, that's how the Messiah came. That's how the Word of God came. That's how the law came. That's how the covenants came. That's how the promises were made. He, he's recognizing all that came through them. He says, man, if I could do it, if I had the ability, if I had the authority, I would be cursed so that they could be blessed. But the point you need to see is that he recognizes no matter how much he might want that, he doesn't have the power to do that. Only God can save people. Yet, even though he knows that, it doesn't stop him from serving people. It doesn't stop him from taking the gospel all over the world. It doesn't stop him from loving people, for caring for people, for hoping for people, for preaching to people. Paul planted churches and took the gospel all over the known world. Why? Because he knew what he's going to talk about in Romans chapter 10. He says, how then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? He says, if they're going to be saved, I've got to do my part. That's why at our church, I always end with an opportunity for people to make a decision to follow Jesus with an invitation for people to take that step. I'm going to do that again today. Why? Because God has his part, but i got to do my part. And if you're part of this church, if I'm your pastor, well, my part is preaching, but you have a part too. Like, this would be a pretty sad church if it was just me. Can you imagine that? Like, imagine, like, you're coming in, and it's like, it's raining, so like I'm running out there with an umbrella, and then I'm like trying to greet somebody walking in, and then like trying to like do that, so there's like music playing in here, but oh, I gotta go help the kids get checked in, and before that, I gotta get, you know, preach the message, so I got like a baby in one hand, and you're like, I don't know if I trust this guy, and he's preaching, and there's like other babies rolling around here. It takes a lot of people 
I've got my part, but you've got your part. And I just want to be real clear. If I'm your pastor, if this is your church, you need to play your part. You need to play your part. There are places for you to serve. There are places for you to get involved in. In, in, in fact, there's going to be a lot of things coming up in about a month, little over a month away. We're going to do something called Serve Day. Serve Day is, is one day where we ask 100% participation. Everybody get involved in serving our community. There's going to be something for everybody. There's going to be opportunities for you to sign up and be a part. And you can pick that. Maybe you want to lead a, a project and if you've been a part, you know, you know what it's about, but we'll give you more details next week. But, but Serve Day, it's, it's one day. It's going to be July 22nd. It's on a Saturday to serve our city. You're like, oh, well, I'm out of town that day. I've got to work that day. We're going to have some stuff during the week, too, that you can help lead up to to, to get those projects ready. Why do we do that? Because we can't change our city, but we can serve our city. Right? God, God calls us to serve our city. So, like Serve Day is one of those things. We're going to do a lot of outreach, like 25, 35 different projects. It's going to make a big difference in serving people, letting them know the love of Jesus. Well, not just that. You know, the greatest outreach we do every week happens on Sunday where people are coming in and giving their life to Christ. And we've got a great opportunity. Popcorn and Movies coming up, one of our biggest series of the year. It, it's... It's a great time to invite those in your life who are far from God, but guess what? Just, can I be candid with you? I don't want a single person to walk in here who doesn't get greeted. I want to make sure everybody has a chance to have a handshake, a hello, uh, to be known, to introduce yourself. You know, we're going to have popcorn and different stuff going on. It's, a, it's, not, it's fun, it's easy, but I want you to be involved and take a step and be part of this mission. If you're here and you're between the ages of 18 and 30, I want to connect with you on June 25th. We're going to do something here at 7 o'clock, June 25th, if you're 18 to 30. And it's top secret. I'm not even going to tell you because you have to come to find out. And if you're 35 and you try and sneak in, I'm going to kick you out. (laughs) But 18 to 30, we've we've got something fun planned. And it's a way for you to get involved and be a part of doing your part. God has his part, but you have your part because Only God can save people, but we can serve people. We we can create opportunities for the gospel to be preached and for people to come to know Jesus. Okay, i got to continue. Paul goes on in verse 9. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed. Why does he say that? Because God's promise came through the Jewish people. And Paul's focused on the Gentiles. He's planted churches in Gentile nations. And now the Jews are thinking, well, maybe, what's that mean? i got to reconcile this tension. I thought we were God's chosen and you're going to the Gentiles, how do you bring these two groups of people together? Well, he says, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they're his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children. It's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by her father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, one, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by whom he calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I know this a lot seems confusing. Let me give you the next handle. 
God's promise isn't conditioned on my performance. God's promise isn't conditioned on my performance. See, Paul is trying to show that the promise of God wasn't about a physical trait. It was a spiritual one. The way he's going to illustrate this is to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, where God first made the promise to Abraham, except he wasn't Abraham at the time. He was only Abram. So context, the Jewish people are like, well, we're God's chosen. We're God's people. We've got the bloodline. We can trace the ancestry. How do we reconcile this tension, Paul, that Gentiles are apart? And he says, look, not everybody who was born of Abraham is really a child of the promise. So this is the story. God appears to Abraham. He says, Abe, you are going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I will make you a great nation. The problem is Abraham didn't have any children. He was 75 years old. How are you going to make me a great nation? Families, all of this. Well, God makes him the promise, and for decades, say decades, decades. not like a year and a couple months, not like five years, not like 10 years, decades, God made him this promise, you're going to be a father of many nations, I'll make you a great nation, no kids. So Sarah gets this idea, she's like, hey, you know what God said, maybe, um, maybe the way it's going to happen is I've got this servant, maybe you should sleep with my servant, and that's how it's going to happen. And Abraham's like, well, I mean, that's what you want, I mean, you said it, you know, it's in the Bible, it's like, it's how it happens. So you don't tell me twice. So uh, it happens. The problem is that wasn't God's promise. Now, before we're too hard on Abraham, that was culturally acceptable. It would have been very normal in this culture at the time. But how many of you know what's culturally acceptable isn't always God's way? So, so Abraham, he has the does this, and Ishmael is born. Biologically, Ishmael is Abraham's son. But it's not the promise. This isn't an act of devotion. Oh, no, we're going to do what God wants. No, it's an act of disobedience. It, it, it's, they weren't, it wasn't acting in obedience with God's word. It was acting in opposition to what God said. So Ishmael, he's Abraham's son, but he's not the promised child. Well, at Age 100, by the grace of God, they have a son, Isaac. Isaac is the promised one. Where Ishmael represents them trying, Isaac represents them trusting. God's promise is not conditioned on your performance. And then he goes on, Paul goes on, he says, I'm going to talk to you about, let's talk about Isaac. Because Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac took a wife, Rebekah, and they had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Yet before they were even born, God's, before they had done anything, God said, the older will serve the younger. Well, why is that significant? Well, in this culture, the firstborn had the authority. The firstborn had the birthright. The firstborn got the inheritance. The firstborn had the blessing. The firstborn was the one that the family followed. But God says before they've done anything, before they were born, I'm choosing the younger one. The older will serve the younger, to illustrate and demonstrate 
that it's not because of your strength, it's not because of your ability, it's not because of rights, it's not because of what you deserve, it's because of my grace that the promise comes to you. Well, so Jacob and Esau, Esau's the firstborn, they're twins. Moments later, Jacob comes out grabbing the heel of Esau, but Esau's still the firstborn. In fact, Jacob means heel grabber. That's how they named him. It was kind of this like slang term to mean trickster. Like he's always trying to get what's not his, like deceiver. That's what they named him. Can you imagine naming your kid deceiver? Hey, come here, deception. I want to talk to you for a minute. <laughs> Charlatan, Charlotte for short. You know, I, I want, to, want to speak to you. Well, Jacob lived up to his name. Tricked Esau, tricked him for the birthright, tricked him for the blessing. And the point is, Jacob got God's promise, but not because of his performance, meaning not because he was a good guy, not because he lived right, not because he was holy, not because he did the right things. He received it, because God said it. So, what does all that mean for us? Because you hear this thing and it's like, all right, well, I know that God has commands, but I know God also has plans. I know that God has his will, but like, am I supposed, what about all these commands in Scripture and instructions with Scripture? Am I supposed to do this stuff or is what God wants to happen going to happen anyway? It's attention. And this is the best handle I can give you. What are you supposed to do? I mean, just leave things up to God because God's plans aren't going to fail? Are you supposed to work to bring it to pass because he wants you to be part of his plan? I understand the tension. Best thing I can tell you is this, this is my approach. I'm going to rest like it depends on God, but I'm going to work like it depends on me. Here's what I mean. We need to remember God is God, and we're not. God's God, we're not. He has authority. We have responsibility. Are those things contradictory? No, it's attention. It's how we hold the truth. When I put my head down on my pillow, I'm going to trust that God is watching over his word to perform it. I'm going to trust that God knows what's going on, that he sees the end from the beginning, that he's working even when it seems like he's not working, and that it's not on me how much I read my Bible today, how good I did, did I say the right things, did, did, did I, you know, keep myself on the straight and narrow, or... Even if I messed up, screwed up, fall short, know the standard, missed it, I'm going to trust, I'm going to rest like it depends on God, not my ability. But when I wake up, I'm going to work like it depends on me. And it's okay, maybe I did miss it. Maybe I did fall short. Maybe, maybe I've got some gaps. I'm going to repent where I need to repent. I'm going to get right where I need to get right. I'm going to be reconciled where I need to reconcile. I'm, I'm going to give my best to build God's church. I'm going to give my best to build the kingdom. I'm going to invite people. I'm, I'm going to preach like it matters. I'm going to invite people like it matters. I'm going to give like it matters. I'm going to serve like it matters. I'm, I'm going to rest like it depends on God, but I'm going to work like it depends on me.
What, what's that mean for you? Man, when you put your, pe- your head on your pillow tonight, rest that God's got you. Even if you messed up, he's got you. Even if you fell short, not just God's expectations, but your own, he's got you. Depends on God, not you. But when you get up, and let's, let's make the most of the opportunities God's given us. He is always inviting us into his plan. He is always wanting to be glorified through you and use you. Let's be a part.